everyone, Sam Brief here, coming in hot with a fresh mental game podcast. Hope you're doing well. It's December. It's getting cold here in Chicago. Maybe you're listening from somewhere like Florida, though, and it's not too cold. But hope everyone's doing well. This can always be a, a weird time of year. It's nice. It's the holiday season, but also you get cold, dark. This new variant, the Omicron, is going around. So just be healthy, be safe, uh, make sure you're taking care of yourself. We got a really exciting mental game episode today with Kieran Lovegrove, who I first came across because he was featured in a huge ESPN the Magazine feature by June Lee about the mental health crisis in minor league baseball. And that's the result of what players like Kieran Lovegrove and and pretty much anyone who's ever worked in minor league baseball says is just a horrible situation of poverty level pay, no housing availability, lack of nutrition, lack of resources going into the minor league game, where you have billionaire owners and these huge conglomerates, which are what baseball teams are now at the major league level, just not giving any resources, having their minor league players live on air mattresses in apartment basements and eating nothing but fast food and peanut butter and jelly. And that's driving this mental health crisis. And Kieran Lovegrove is featured in a really poignant lead of the story where he breaks down his turn for the worse. You'll hear more from him in this podcast, but it involved severe depression alcoholism, and then a suicide attempt. He actually made an attempt on his own life, and he felt that this was in large part due to the conditions that he was under. And he's now taken a leading role in trying to make sure that other minor leaguers are taken care of and don't end up taking that turn for the worse like him. Now, luckily, he lived through that attempt. He's turned around his life. He's sober. And now he's retired and doing his own thing. And he is an awesome, surprising, intriguing person to talk to. Kieran Lovegrove, who originally is from Johannesburg, South Africa. And then out of high school, he was a third-round pick of the Indians in 2012. And he's been a pro baseball player up until this year when he's on his new mission, doing his thing with a really cute dog that was right around the corner when we were recording the podcast. So without further ado, I think you're really going to be intrigued by this one. It's Kieran Lovegrove on The Mental Game. Tell me about a time in your life when you felt your mental game was really challenged. Well, it's quite an extended period of time, if we're being honest. Um, I maybe didn't have the best perception of it until well afterwards, and I could look back and, and realize. But my you know, first five or so years in pro ball, um, the first time I'd really moved away from home, uh, I'd been given a, a decent signing bonus. So I thought I could take on the world. And when the reality of adult life and how difficult baseball was going to be, I mean, how much work really had to go in beyond what I had already done. Um, I started to doubt myself and then I started to lash out and, you know, I, I walked around with this chip on my shoulder for no reason. And during those first maybe five or so years, I just didn't feel like a good teammate. I didn't feel like a good person. And that constant negative rumination um, really, really dug at me. And, you know, I found my escape through alcohol, which was obviously not a, a viable long-term coping strategy. And, you know, I developed a, a pretty severe alcoholism from the age of like 18 to 22. And... Yeah, during that time, I just would constantly berate myself internally for things that probably didn't deserve that sort of treatment. And it all culminated, and I've spoken about it many times before, but in 2016 with my, or the winter of 2015 with my uh, suicide attempt, that was the culmination of all those negative feelings coming to a head. And, and for me deciding that at that time with how disrupted my thought processes were with how much I didn't feel like I was fitting in anywhere in the world. It, it felt better to remove myself from it. And now looking back with a much different perspective, I, I realize how important that 
moment and that variable in my life really is. Um, that safety being on and me still being here is what I look at as kind of my own personal rebirth. Um, in that moment, you stare the void in the face and the cliche is the void stares back. And you realize that a lot of the things that happen in our physical world do not even come close to the fear that's produced in that moment. When you realize that it is nothing. When that, when that first initial moment of you make this decision and you have no idea, there is no information, there is no understanding. It is just the true unknown that we have left. And, you know, looking back on that moment, seeing it as what it was, which is this, this time in my life where I was at my absolute lowest. And then I even tried to go lower than that. And I, I genuinely hit rock bottom. Once I started to process through that over the following years, I realized just how important my life could be if I stopped isolating myself from people, if I stopped trying to change who I was to fit in with people's standards. Um, and I, I started to rebuild myself over those years. And still up until very recently, I've been working through my own mental struggles. And even ironically, yesterday, <laughs> yesterday just got hit with a wave of depression out of nowhere for no reason. And realizing that these things happen and it's part of my neurochemistry and it is going to be an ongoing competition with myself to maintain stability. Kieran, first of all, I, I just want to say thank you for being so open, you know, to come on in a public forum like this, even though I'm the only person you're looking at it. I know you have talked many times about it, but every single time you do, it is a brave act. I know you know that. So I, I want to say I, thank you for that. I, I appreciate that. And in my mind, um, you know, for me to dredge up something that was so personally painful for me um, that I, I compartmentalized for years and, and never really dealt with. Um, and then looking back now, slightly older, slightly more understanding, um, you realize how much it would pain you to watch someone else go through that. And having seen it, having heard stories from other players, having heard stories from people outside of the game, it becomes a much easier subject to talk about knowing that my words, even if they help one person, I mean, that's really the goal. If they help one person, if they make them reconsider their choices a little bit, or even if they just look at themselves a little bit differently, it, it gives me, I suppose the word would be courage, the courage to continually speak about it and to bring it up and speak openly and, you know, bear my vulnerabilities because it's something that I believe is very human, the ability to bear vulnerabilities to other people and then to sympathize and empathize with those feelings. It really is. I mean, and I, I admire that goal of yours to help just one person. And you're, you will, through your platform, and already have helped more than just one, but to help one person, that's it's a noble goal. It, it really is. And I... I want to ask you next, Kieran, just what you mentioned at the tail end of that I'm interested in is that yesterday you got hit with a wave of depression yeah. and you're now four years sober, right? Uh, no, I mean, I'm probably two years plus sober, um, really when I started using cannabis medicinally. Mm. is what really helped me to look at alcohol and go, why am I putting this in my body? Right. And every now and again, I will enjoy a beer. I still love beer. I still will enjoy a good scotch, but it's one where it used to be 10. And that was a casual night for me. Um, I have a much healthier respect for what alcohol can do to a person. And now, you know, I really, for the last two years, I've had maybe four drinks total and one of or two of them were in Chattanooga just because we were walking around on an off day and it was so hot that funny enough Ryan Clark and I actually went into a uh a little pizza shop bar and I was just man nothing sounds better than just a cold beer and it was you know what it, it was really enjoyable and you but, had it for the taste and I had it for the taste and the and, refreshment and I had another one and then I started to feel the buzz and I went that's why I don't do this anymore 
Because in the past, that's, that buzz would have encouraged me to keep going. Mm-hmm. And it would have just encouraged me to, the way I describe it is curb my thought process, basically dull my entire mm-hmm. brain to where I can't have ruminative thoughts because I can barely have thoughts. And that's not a healthy way to try and cope with that. And you were berating yourself, as you said, and those coping mechanisms were horrible, right? And then yeah, you and- went to the, to at the end, the worst one, which is when you described the staring into the void. Yeah. And back to yesterday, and I, I don't want to harp just no, on I, one I, moment, I, I, but I'm, I'm curious about you being what I know you perceive as a new man, right? You've sort of rebirthed yourself here. Yesterday, you went through depression, which millions of people do every day, right? I think people, I hope, are starting to normalize that more, that, that that's a yeah. fine thing to go through. I'm curious about mentally how it felt coping with that versus the berating depression that you dealt with when you were at your low point. So uh, to kind of give a background on how yesterday started, I got up early, had to take uh, my partner's mom and her to the airport to drop her off. We went and got some new plants. Like it was a good start to the morning. And then when I got home, all of a sudden everything shut down and my one of my internal thought processes was trying to tell me like hey you're doing all this work you're advocating you're doing everything but if it's all for you know if for whatever reason it ends up being all for nothing what's the point of doing it in the first place and it's that you know my brain's trying to convince me that i should just do nothing because it it is pointless and you know i deal with an existential crisis like every other day because i'm constantly thinking about um, just the vastness of the universe and how insignificant we as, as individual humans really are. And so I wrestle with that, you know, existentialism quite a bit, but I sat there and I, I laid on the couch for a couple of hours and my partner was really, really supportive during it. And she's like, Hey, like when you start to feel better, like, I know it's one of those things. And I laid there and I started to try and change my thought pattern. And I tried to tell myself like, Hey, you have things to do today. You have to record a video. You have to go up and coach. Like, these are non-negotiables for you. And I just had to convince myself, like, go lose yourself in work for a little bit. Go lose yourself in coaching for a little bit. It will get you out of your head. It will help you to maybe laugh a little bit. And of course, I go through my work here and then I go up to coach and, you know, I'm, I'm with high schoolers and they're having a game and we were winning and the pitchers are doing well. And yeah, I start to feel a little bit better. And I get home and I'm still kind of dealing with that depression and, and fighting myself. And, and it's just learning yourself. It's learning how to navigate depression and how to navigate your own brain, because that is really what dictates a lot of this is your brain's neurochemistry. And that small change of going out and coaching and doing it seems to have helped. I mean, it, I, I absolutely. had a similar moment. I was having, for me, it's the anxiety. So I was having a little bout of anxiety probably around the same time you were feeling the way you just described. And for me, it was just as simple as leaving my apartment and feeling the fresh air, which by the way, I'm in Chicago is cold as, but that blast of fresh air and the fact that the sun was out too, just like erased everything. It's your reminder of life. Mm -hmm. It's the reminder of beauty of nature and that, you know, I always think about just the, the slog of evolution to get to where we are now from 2 billion years ago till now, you know, from 4, bil- or 4 million years of bipedal evolution, 300,000 years of Homo sapiens evolution to get to where we are now. It's a reminder that we come from nature. We come from, from just these, the, the, the smallest organisms you can think of, single-celled organisms. And it's this long, long slog of pro- pro- uh, progress. And for any of us to be here is a miracle. And the time that humans will be on this planet is going to be incredibly short in the planet's overall history. So really taking that to heart and saying, it's your physical manifestation of life is very, very limited. And we don't know if you return to consciousness or, you know, go to heaven or whatever the the many different ideas of afterlife are, we just don't have any concrete evidence. So to, to take any day on this planet as 
anything but like a genuine miracle is is tough for me now it's become a lot more difficult for me to fall into depressive loops because i have that sort of a coping strategy we have that's one plant there we have 40 something plants in the house and so today was my day to do plant chores and you bring them all outside and you water them and you check them and that's something that helps me having music playing while i do that is enormously helpful it's finding your personal coping strategies. And I think it takes time. And more importantly, I think it takes the ability to be very, very honest with yourself, which is not something I think a lot of people get comfortable with. That's one of the most difficult skills you could even concoct is I, the ability to be honest with yourself. I didn't even have the ability to do it. I am a rationalist to the point where I actually make irrational decisions by rationalizing them in my own brain. It is one of the most insane things that I've had to deal with is I will convince myself of the opposite of what I need to do because of my ability to rationalize. The brain is a lot of patterning. And if you build certain synaptic connections over a long period of time, they become very strong and breaking those pathways can take time, but when it does happen, it's very freeing. So my therapist calls that process effing it up. He'll go, oh, eff it up. So you, you know, you might have one coping response that's not so good and maybe provokes even more anxiety. It's like, no, eff that up. Just do something else. Yeah, just and effing it up works. And and thinking about that from an ancient human perspective, it does make sense. I mean, the the idea of routine in, let's say, humans 75,000 years ago. The idea of routine was you wake up, you survive, you go to bed. Your routine was to figure out how to survive every day in different climate, in different scenarios. In, you know, one week you have a food source, the next you don't. And so the routine was waking up and searching for food, finding food learning how to hunt it, learning how to trap it, learning how to make tools. And it was constantly new information. It was remembering the, you know, the five or 15 square miles in which you live. That's the, the power that our brain has. It's truly an incredible machine. I think in our modern society, it is dulled and it is curbed and it's, it's inability to fully explore all the possibility around it, I think eventually forms those patterns of wake up, do the same thing every single day. And, over, and, and after a while, your brain tries to rebel against that. And if it loses that rebellion, you fall into that deep depression. You fall into um, never-ending loops of anxiety because you feel like you should be doing something different and you're constantly going through the same routine. And while you're surviving, your brain is not having the ability to do what it's meant to do, which is constantly branch out and learn new things. And, you know, I have my, my thoughts on, on neurodevelopment through evolution, but I'm also not a scientist. <laughs> I'm glad you can admit that. Kieran, you mentioned routine. And I'm fascinated by your thoughts on, on neuroevolution. I really am because evolutionary psychology that was something i've always been interested in i've read about and the fact that you clearly are such a wealth of knowledge i, mean, I know you said you're not a scientist but you know you're you don't you don't need to have a science degree to know your stuff so kudos to you on that thank you and you mentioned routine which in my mind i hear baseball <laughs> it's yeah. like the most routine thing ever and you, it's Played professional it's, baseball. I broadcast in professional baseball. Both of us know that it's the ultimate routine. It's extremely and, prevalent in baseball. Yeah. Yeah, that exactly. And it's, you didn't have a good routine for quite some time. And no, I, I talk about that quite a bit. Let's hear about it because I'm curious how that routine and that environment. And for those of you who haven't read much about Kieran, it's what a lot of minor league baseball players go through and pretty much everyone, which is not making enough money and living in dumps on floors and just being worried about where your next meal is going to come from being malnourished, 
eating like crap and yeah. you already heard yeah. what Kieran personally was going through. So how did the environment foster that? Well, at first I had zero routine in baseball. Um, as a high school and amateur athlete, I was talented enough to just get by by being an athlete. Uh, that quickly hit a wall in Pro Bowl. I mean, you become whatever, the, the best athlete from your high school, you are now the 27th best athlete on that team. Pro Bowl is filled with just incredible baseball players. And for the first few years, I didn't even understand how to develop a routine. And due to my own sort of neurodivergency and my ADHD and, and I found it very difficult to stick to something. As I got older and, and my performance started to suffer and my body was breaking down, um, it became more and more important that I tried to develop one. And it wasn't necessarily that, oh, you need to have the same routine where you do the same thing down to each millimeter. I found it to be extremely helpful for me to have a general routine that I could modify if need be, but it was always getting my body ready. It was getting my mind in the right place. It was just taking an hour before I went out for stretch to prepare myself for the day, whatever that needed to be. If one day it was my hips are extremely tight, then that's my focus for the first 30 minutes. If it's my back, if it's my legs, it's my arm, taking the time to assess it. Once again, understanding your body just as much as you need to understand your brain. You know, my, my habit for the week in my journal is mind body connection because I felt like mine was diminishing over the last few weeks. I've been working more than I'm used to working and I haven't had time to really do any workouts and I could feel myself start to spiral. And obviously it culminated in a depressive episode yesterday, but not having a routine right now is difficult for me. And so trying to work my way back into a new one now that I am working two jobs in an off season um, and still trying to find time to maintain my body, maintain my weight, eat enough food, eat healthy food. Um, for me, I'm in the process of redeveloping a routine. But little things that I add into it tend to help, you know, making sure that I move at least 30 minutes a day. I believe it's one of the most important things for human health. Humans are not built to be sedentary. We are not built to sit for very long. They didn't have chairs. Didn't have chairs. Exactly. So being able to go into a full squat in a resting position is natural, in my opinion. Uh, being able to sit, you know, on your actual, you know, sit bones and be quiet and patient, I believe is an extremely important human action. And, you know, you can easily re relate that to, hey, every single medical study shows that being active is better for you, plain and simple. I, I, I don't need to go into depth in that. Being active and living an active lifestyle helps you in every single capacity. Combining that with, you know, meditative effort, the ability to sit and be with your thoughts and observe the world for what it is, that is another very natural human thing. If, you know, we talked about cavemen sitting and, and being on alert, well, very likely they wouldn't be constantly, you know, high strung, high cortisol levels. They would be sitting very quietly, focusing on breathing, because it was a very natural thing for them to just breathe correctly and observing the environment in front of them, having their ears open so that they could hear an animal moving 50 yards away so that they could smell something going through the air. Even though humans have a relatively diminished sense of smell, if you sit and just listen and sniff and hear and see and, and feel the environment, that is in a sense meditation. And, and it's amazing what you notice when you do that. I mean, really, the, the things the, that we don't notice because we're too tunnel vision is crazy. Sometimes it just takes looking a little bit closer at something. Mm -hmm. Next time you go up to any sort of a plant, just inspect it very closely and you'll find very interesting things about it. The way the leaves actually form coming out, the way the vesicles transport water, it's it's fascinating to look at up close and to really pay attention to minor details. Sit and, you know, one thing I do a ton now is, is I sit on my patio and I watch the hummingbirds. And to me, it's just spectacular to just sit and watch nature at work. And I do feel that it's, it's a very ancient human thing that not enough people find the time to do. When would you do that 
if at all, and I'm sort of guessing here, when you were, say, a 19-year-old? I wouldn't. I didn't understand it. Um, at 19, if I had to sit and be with my thoughts, I would drink a half a bottle of bourbon, so I didn't. Hmm. Um, you know, my my alcoholism stemmed from a, a desire to be neurotypical and to not have the overactive ADHD brain that I think for a lot of people can be very off-putting when they first meet me. And for a lot of my teammates, it took about a year for them to even understand how I operated. Um, you know, now that that process has become a lot quicker because I'm better at being my authentic self. And so I think people get it a lot quicker. But in the past, when I was trying to mask up who I was and um, trying to fit in, I felt like a lot of people were looking at me and they knew what I was presenting was fake. They were very aware of it, whether they were there, whether they were consciously or subconsciously aware of it. I think a lot of people looked at me and said, there's something not quite right about the way he's acting. And I would imagine that'd be very off-putting to people. Hmm. Now moving into what, uh, 27, so eight years later, I don't hide who I am from the very start. Uh, I went into this season particularly, and I said, I'm just going to be my typical ludicrous self. And my teammates kind of rallied around that. And they said, that's our weird dude. Like we got our weird dude. And I was fine with that. That's the role I enjoy playing. The, the Latino players called me El Profesor, which is my favorite nickname I've ever had. El Profesor. I love that. And it was just because I'd sit in the bullpen and yeah. I'd see a little jumping spider and I would follow that spider for 45 minutes and see what it was doing. I just became fascinated with the smallest things. Um, if you ever end up talking to any of the guys from that Rocket City team, I'm sure they'll tell you about the time I tried to save a baby bird. And the, the two and a half days of me trying to do that. Tried? Well, it was a small little baby bird that was... Try, because I'm, I'm concerned because tried implies you failed. <laughs> well, no, I don't think I... <laughs> I did the first... Which is a loaded statement. The very first day, I could not catch this thing. And it couldn't fly high enough to get out of the, the field. Okay. It was still like just barely getting into... It was still molting its baby feathers. And like... Um, it was just trying to get up to where you could hear its mother calling. And so I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, I'm heartbroken because I don't want to see this bird the following day dead on the field. But I tried for an entire batting practice. I couldn't catch it. We show up for the game the next day and I hear this thing chirping and it's right outside of our bullpen, which in Rocket City is out in left center field. And the guys know I'm like, I need to save this bird. I need to get this bird out of the field. So I grab a towel. I finally catch the bird. It squeaks out of my hands and now it's in the bullpen. I'm like, okay, better than the field, but still not great. I finally get it again, squeaks out of the towel, flies back onto the field. <laughs> so now I'm like, all right, we're in the middle of an inning. At that at the half, I'm gonna have to go and get this bird off the field. So I managed to get back out there in the middle. You know, guys are warming up. I managed to corral this thing. And as soon as I get it up to like chest height, it takes off straight. And flies, you know, between the fence, between the back fence of the bullpen, and actually gets up and out of the stadium for the first time in two days. And as it flew away, you could see another adult bird of the same species fly over, see it, and then they flew off together. And That's awesome. I, so you you succeeded. I did succeed. I also got fined for that by what? kangaroo kangaroo court for oh, okay. um, kangaroo saving court. a bird during the middle of a game. I accepted that one. And okay. I did it. I don't. Like I thought you were about to get into. Uh, you tell me that, like, your no, team or the league find you, yeah. and I was gonna. It was a kangaroo court thing. Okay. And my defense to it was, sad animals make me sad. <laughs> Which is it, not a bad quality to have. No, like you hear the bird chirping for two days. It. I know that to a lot of people it's just a bird, but I'm like, it's a sentient being. <laughs> I mean, to me, that's enough. So I try my best now to, to do what I can. If like anyone who knows me and my, and my family and my partner, like if we hear about a stray dog in the neighborhood, we're off trying to find it. If mm -hmm. years ago we were, there was a box of kittens dropped off on our neighbor's doorstep, covered in fleas, really sick. And my mom and I said, yeah, we'll take them. We'll take care of them. And so we nursed him back to health and then 
you know, we're able to, we had neighbors adopt them and everything. I just, I mean, as you can see, animals are a huge part of. Hi, Abner. Yeah. For those of you who don't understand that comment before we started recording, I noticed this beautiful white thing over Kieran's shoulder on his bed. And his name is Abner. Yeah. And he's in, even though Abner Doubleday did not invent baseball. No, he's named after, as, as we've talked about, he's named after the pig in Hey Arnold or the Johnny Cash song, depending on which one my partner decides uh, to say that day. But he's in pretty much every video because when I'm working, he just hangs out with me. I'm usually the only one home. So he's just my little partner. No, he's He's cute. He's, he's the third man on this podcast. Incredible dog. Absolutely incredible dog. Kieran, you've got a lot of incredible things to share, stories to tell from saving a baby bird for crying out loud. That's <laughs> that might be the best of them all. Um, but something I, I want to make sure we touch on is what I read about maybe about a month ago, even though I know you actually came out two years ago yeah. to your teammates, you came out at least publicly as bisexual. And you said that you stayed in the closet because of fear. So yeah, what was behind that? staying in the closet part of it well once again i I think this goes back to my ability to Mm self-rationalize so from the time i was 12 years old i was very aware of my bisexuality i didn't really argue with it too much i you know anyone who grew up during that time understands that the lexicon of of middle schoolers is not the most uh it's just not the best it's horrible and and my own verbiage (laughs) included i you know i threw slurs and epithets around because mm-hmm. you don't realize the power those words carry. And as I got older and I saw more and more people affected by um, the negative vernacular used by people, the, I mean, the, the, just the fight to get gay marriage legalized. I mean, that only happened in what, 16. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, it grew uh, as something that I eventually took pride in. Once I decided that it was a part of me and that living without that being a part of me was detrimental to my health and to my authenticity. So it, it started with an ex uh, partner of mine who I just, I was struggling with mental health during the time. This is when I was 22 maybe. And, um, and finally like admitting it to someone else for the first time gave me the courage to continue doing so. It was that first initial response of someone saying, there's nothing wrong with you for being bisexual. And it continued to kind of snowball with positivity when I came out to my friends. And, um, and then in what I actually started in 17, oh boy, 17 or 18. No, I can't remember. Um, but it was two roommates that I had that I was very close with. And we were just sitting on the floor of our apartment because we didn't have any furniture, um, nor did we have a TV. So we were just sitting on the floor. Minor league baseball. Minor league baseball, exactly. And we were just talking. And um, I think we had, we might have had you know, some people over that weren't baseball players. And as we were just having conversations, conversation around bisexuality came up and I kind of turned to my teammates. I'm like, you guys, are you like aware that I'm bisexual or have you guessed it? And they're like, yeah, we're, yeah. Like we know you, it's not surprising to anybody. And if you spend enough time with me and my mannerisms and the way I, you know, act and speak and live, um, I don't think anyone's surprised when they hear it. And that continual positivity, uh, which not everyone gets, I understand that. Some people come out and they get met with negative response or to me the single worst phrase you can utter when someone comes out to you which is oh i don't care it is the most defeating statement that i believe people say when when others come out and it is i don't maybe it's just me personally but hearing the words i don't care and as someone who really tries to care about a lot of things. Um, 
that that is the response that I got from certain people in my life. And had it come earlier, had it come in the first couple of times, it might've actually stopped me from continuing to do so. But by the time I'd heard that statement uh, uttered to me by someone very close, I was finally saying, I don't care if you don't care. Like, yes, I understand the intention behind it is, oh, it doesn't matter to me. Like you're who you are, who you are. It's just the, the words themselves. It's a phrase that I absolutely despise. As simple as asking someone, hey, what do you want to eat for dinner? Oh, well, I don't care. You should care. These are things people should care about. You're, you're really making me think bluntly. I've said that before. Yeah, I know. We all have. I had never thought of it like that because in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, this is the best thing to say. I don't care. You're the same person before. Like you get the intention. But at the same time, I see why to the person sharing such an intimate detail about them yeah. that might be very nervous about it to hear, I don't care. It's, it's counterintuitive. So thank you for yeah. sharing that. Cause that honestly it, changes my perspective on no, it. And, and to be honest, I didn't understand that feeling and I'll, I'll mm -hmm. share a little bit more detail on the, on the time that I heard it. And the first time I realized how painful it can be to hear was when I came out to my father and I understand his intention behind the words, mm -hmm. but it's something that I genuinely cared about a lot. It was, you know, this happened relatively recently. Um, as something that I genuinely cared about a lot to hear that. And to, for me, it was, it was such a nerve wracking experience. I mean, the amount of emotions that I was wrestling with during the time when I was trying to do so, um, to have it culminate in me coming out and him saying, Oh, I don't care. Like, you know, that I don't care. It, it's a misguided intention in, in, in my point of view. And while I do understand what, those words are supposed to mean the, the connotation is very different and it can be very painful. So, you know, to anyone listening who does, who has caught themselves using that phrase to when anybody comes out, change it to thank you for telling me. And I love you for it. Like it's a very small change, but it can mean a lot to the person who hears it. Because that phrase that you just used is what a lot of us are thinking in our heads if we say, I don't care. Because I'm in my head thinking, oh, I love this person no matter what. I don't care who they love. Yeah. But, but sometimes don't say the I don't care part. Say the I love you and I thank you for sharing that part. Yeah. And, and sometimes the absence of emotions can be just as bad as negative ones. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the what is it? The, the opposite of love is not or the opposite of hate is not love. It's, it's, uh, apathy. Like, yeah. To, yeah. Lo love and hate are so, such close, closely related emotions. The worst thing to feel is nothing. You know, I always, <laughs> when I was a more vindictive, younger person, I found the most effective tool to, um, really cutting people down was to just not give them the time of day to act as if they meant nothing to me. Um, was a far more powerful, uh, driver of negative emotions to people than me, you know, and I was never the type to, to berate people. It's not really in my nature, despite doing it to myself. Um, you know, I always went for the cold shoulder and when it was done back to me in that moment, a lot of thoughts came crashing down. I realized this is a painful, painful thing to do to somebody. If they're looking for a different response, if they're just looking for, and I love you, from someone as important as their father or their mother or their grandparents or whoever it may be. And they get something like, and I don't care. I really do believe it can be extremely painful and they'll never tell you because like I said, the intent of those words is understood, but yeah, the actual action of it, it, it can certainly leave a better taste in people's mouths. Thank you for sharing that. Really. That that's a perspective that, as the host of this podcast, I needed to hear. I'm, so I I'm hope glad I could give at you least that. a couple of listeners hear it too. So thank you, Kieran. I, yeah. I, I really respect that. And I'm glad that now you publicly are, are being fully honest with who yeah. you are. I'm, I'm and, curious how that feels. Um, you know what? It, it 
feels authentic. As I use that word a ton, but um, I don't feel like I'm hiding who I am. I don't feel like I need to anymore. Um, you know, my decision to even to have it included in that article was pretty weighed and measured because I'd been living publicly out in my personal life for quite a while. And I knew that if it got to the media, it's going to be used to create fervor and excitement. And as somebody who believes that uh, divergent sexuality is a natural human thing, and if we want to go into my thoughts on sexuality, we can. But I, I genuinely believe that as we continue to understand the human brain a little bit more and human sexuality, it'll make perfect sense that a large portion of people are not strictly heterosexual. And there's even a genetic component that shows that people that have same-sex experiences or are more open, uh, open-minded sexually actually have a better chance of reproducing. So it would actually pick for those genes. If you are able to get it, <clears throat> if you're able to cooperate with both men and women a lot easier, if you can relate to them, if you can, you know, diffuse tension through sex like certain animals do, um, it becomes a extreme boon for your genetic lineage because now you are seen as a cooperative individual. And for humans, at least, it seems as though the cooperative gene was chosen over the, you know, violent gene or the, the dominator gene. It seems to have across the, the vast array of humans have specifically chosen for cooperation. And there's another animal that mirrors that and is relatively closely related to us, which is bonobos. Bonobos. I knew it. You yeah, beat me I, to it. And, and I, I speak about it on multiple different podcasts because I think it offers a certain view of humanity that maybe changes our ideas a little bit. All of a sudden, it doesn't seem like, you know, non-heterosexuality is a bad thing. It feels a lot more natural when you look at it from the ancient perspective. I mean, <laughs> I had an unfortunate argument recently about pronouns. And the way I tried to conclude that argument so that the person who was having it could have an out was that our, our Western understanding of intersex people is limited by our capacity of language. That's all it is. There are other languages and other cultures in which there are words that exist for people other than male or female or people that identify differently. It exists in history, which means it's been around for a long time. And I, I try to say like, it's a constriction of our language. It has nothing to do with the biology because the biology is extremely complicated. It is just a constriction of our language. And boy, that didn't end the argument. You gave an out and they didn't take it. But it, I mean, it really is. It's just, mm -hmm. there's so many things that are constricted by our modern understanding. Where if we strip away all the information we've gleaned let's say over the last 2000 years, we have probably forgotten more about human history than we have ever learned. Oh, 100%. Have you ever read Chuck Klosterman? I have not. Okay. I'm going to text you after this episode with a, with a couple book recommendations. One in particular in which he touches on this, which is the concept of knowledge throughout history and how you could go to any point in human history and find strong-headed people who believe that the way we perceive the world now is the right way. But what we know now, even the things that are cutting-edge, scientific breakthroughs, amazing technology, progressive thought, even those things will one day be ancient and perceived by many as idiotic. When I finally had my moment where I realized how insignificant I was, it was extremely freeing. I had, for the first time, a completely new view of my life in its absolute minute insignificancy. To me, it became the most significant thing that I had because it's literally the only thing I own aside from my tattoos. When I die, I will only take this, this uh, corpse that I am inhabiting and my tattoos, and that's it. And having that freedom to now realize there's so much more you can do if you don't focus on kind of the modern ideals. 
I need to have the best car. I need to have the best house. I need to, to have a watch so I can show people how much money I make. I finally broke away from that. I finally got away from consumerism and moved into a life that I was proud of living. Even my insignificant part. I was proud of my part. And I think that that shows in, in my conversations and I think it's what people have resonated with is this freedom to think differently than the status quo, to question reality. I, I really think it's a freeing thing. And while it may not be for everybody, there are those of us who really wish to dedicate our lives to seeing the other side and bringing it back and, and disseminating that information among the public so that they can realize there's so much more out there. And it's, it's beautiful to a degree that is indescribable through our language. That freeing feeling, how does it feel different now from when you were staring into the void? Well, there's not a lot on earth that is scarier than facing down death. Mm -hmm. Aside from facing it down again, there's, there's not a lot that, that genuinely scares me like it used to. Um, when I was weighing the idea of speaking out against minor league inequality and saying, well, this could blackball you from the baseball industry forever. And the easiest argument was, it's the right thing to do. And, and whatever comes of, of it afterwards, you'll always know deep down it was the right thing to do. And that sort of freedom that the only person I really have to answer to is myself and then the universe. It's, it makes it very easy to make the right decision and go on with your day knowing, hey, this might help somebody. This might help progress even just a small fraction but progress a small fraction of humanity to hopefully be a little more altruistic, to hopefully be a little more generous, to, to look at each other as humans with a bit more compassion and to, and to try and give the benefit of the doubt because you don't understand what people are going through. The, the term, I've, I've brought it up in another podcast. And I find it to be such a fascinating term. The word sonder, S-O-N-D-E-R. It is the realization that every human outside of yourself lives a life that is equally as complex and complicated as your own. And when you, you know, the, the time it always seems to hit me is when I'm stuck in traffic. Huh. And I sit there and I go, hundreds of cars, backwards and forwards. Every single one of these people is stuck in traffic. And every single one of them views it differently. Some people may be playing their favorite song and they don't care that they've been stuck there for 30 minutes. While other people are you know, livid and furious that they're stuck in traffic and they are flooding their body with these negative, uh, you know, cortisol and glucocorticoids. And you look at that from the broadest view and you go, well, why are you mad? <laughs> We're all stuck in it. There's nothing that can be done about it. It is outside of your realm of control. It's outside of your three foot sphere of influence. That is, you know, what I try and impart upon people. You have- Sonder. Sonder, you have no control over anything but your own life. But to realize that other people are, are going through the same struggles, that are seeing the same issues in the world, and they may be viewing it differently, but it's because of how complex the brain is. It's because of how complex our own experiences are. To argue with someone and invalidate their life experiences and say, well, you don't have a, uh, a fair judgment on this issue because of so-and-so. Kieran, the concept of Sonder, I'm really grateful that you taught me because this is something that I think of all the time. The concept that I'm looking out my apartment window right now into this massive city of millions of people in Chicago, cars going by. I see a lady sitting at a bus stop reading a book. I see a dude walking with groceries. I see another lady with some dogs. Like they've all got a different story. I do too. I think about that staring out of my window and now I have a word for it. And I'm curious what you think the application to that concept of Sonder is to something like mental health, to this sort of social reckoning that I think both of us hope is really starting to happen that 
everyone has their own level of mental health and that mental health isn't necessarily being riddled with issues. It's just the state of this, your mind. So how does that apply? Well, I think it allows people to be a little bit more compassionate. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just to give an example in my own life, yesterday I was going to work and as I'm pulling up to a stop sign, there's a car in front of me that is just moving at a snail's pace. And part of me wanted to say like, what are we doing? Why are we going five miles an hour in a 30 mile hour zone? And then I thought back on my own experiences. Well, why would I drive that slowly? Maybe I have a, a puppy in the back. Maybe I've got a bunch of a bunch of breakable things that are precariously placed in my back seat, and I only have to drive them three minutes down the road. And it just gives you the ability to take a step back from the entire situation, take a step back from your own emotions and view possibility and say, maybe they do have a brand new puppy. Maybe they just spilled their coffee. Like you just do not know. And to make any snap judgment or especially like a snap emotional decision based off your lack of understanding. um, I think that leads to a lot of discourse or negative discourse in the world where people are making these snap judgments or something that I do personally is continuing arguments in my head and then bringing them back up based off the argument I had in my head instead of actually engaging with the person. Sorry, Abner's knocking pillows over. But um, (laughs) it gave me just a bit better perspective. And I think it might be a difficult thing for people with any sort of an inflated ego to do, to take a step back from themselves and say, imagine you are nothing and you can see the world for what it really is. Because we all paint the world in our own experiences with the with only the colors we are given. If people want to play, if people have only ever seen the world in black and white, they may only ever paint the world in black and white. And so I, I just think Sonder helps to add more colors to your palette so that you can see the world in a slightly different hue that you can hopefully take a second to reassess your emotions and say, maybe I don't need to get mad at this person driving three miles an hour because I can't do anything about it. I mean, really, you can't. And when you let go of that that control that every human wants to have and you say, I am one of my favorite quotes and it's in Marcus Aurelius and it's from Epictetus is, you are a corpse carrying a soul. When you realize that you are just whatever your neurochemistry produces. And that's the, you don't even really have control over that. You barely have control over your own thoughts. Relinquishing that control and saying, I am just guided by whatever is guiding me. Whether it's the universe for for people who are religious, whether it's your God, there is something that guides all of us. And I think when you take a step back and you just look at yourself objectively and you remind yourself, you are just one small speck of dust on a bigger speck of dust floating in space. It frees you to live a better life because I, I, anybody who, who argues that being selfish and being self-absorbed and, you know, being, and, and not having compassion towards other humans and not having compassion towards animals and not having compassion towards the environment is a more enjoyable way to live. I think it's certainly a more, What's the, I don't want to use the word hedonistic, but it kind of is. I mean, like it is a self-indulgent way of living that while may feel good to you, I, I can only imagine ends in emptiness because I lived that lifestyle for years, in, even in my younger days. And it culminated in me wanting to end it all, where I thought I could buy the world with money. I thought I could buy friendships. I thought I could just take everything on myself. And that I could be selfish and self-absorbed and that I would be fine because all I needed was myself. In my personal experience, it it nearly ended everything. And I would have gone to the grave with nothing. Kieran, you've opened up. You've given me so much to chew on. Imagine my audience with me here right now. Can you give all of us a piece of advice that you want to leave on? Immediately when you ask me that, I start to get imposter syndrome. 
And why would they ask me? Yeah. Like, why is, is my opinion even worth hearing or or is my advice even any good? Because what may work for me may be detrimental to a million other people. And in that, I think I've actually found the advice I want to give. Be authentic, be yourself. It is okay to love. It is okay to be emotional. It is okay to, to care. It, It really is. It is, it is freeing to care. It is what life is. And if you find yourself going through your days not caring about them, there might be something dysfunctional in your life that could eventually lead to some serious mental health ailments. When you don't feel fulfilled, when you don't feel purposeful, when you don't feel like your life has meaning. So I encourage people, be authentic. It sounds so cliche, but follow your heart. You know, for me, I... I love science and I love baseball. And I decided, well, I can do both. I can enjoy science. I can research. I can just plug myself into that world as much as possible. And I can maintain my love for baseball and I can maintain my, you know, the relationships with my student athletes who I'm coaching and caring about their performance and caring about their mental health and their physical health and to, to maybe even be a positive influence on them. The best way that I can do that is to be completely authentic with them. I, I don't treat them any differently than I would treat any other person because they're younger. I, I believe that because of their youth, they have the plasticity to learn more than most. And so presenting them with difficult subjects, presenting them with um, you know, high level concepts and pitching, I do it because I genuinely believe that every single one of them is neuroplastic enough and smart enough and curious enough at that age to engage with it. And that only comes about if I'm being authentic with them. When I show up yesterday to practice and I say, Hey guys, not a good day for me, like dealing with a depressive episode, like just want to let you all know, but they rally around and, you know, they bring laughter and they bring joy. And I think them knowing that I was having a bad day, it, it makes it easier for them to, to just kind of bring me into the circle and, and help to lift me up, whether they know it or not. But it's it's bearing those feelings. It's being honest with them and, and not treating them like they're anything different than a human being. Be authentic. Those are two really important words that I want to make sure people don't just brush off. Like, Oh, I've heard that before. It looks like a bumper sticker. Yeah. And that's the thing. I've said this before. Things are cliche because they're true. Exactly. Like, yeah, that's cliche to be authentic. But really think about what that means. When someone says be authentic, who are you? What do you want to be? Be that. Just be true. Because if you're not yourself, then what what are you doing? It's, It's the difference of somebody asking you, hey, how are you doing? And you defaulting to the answer, I'm fine. Or if that person is, is, you know, ready to take on any sort of a emotional burden Mm -hmm. to sit there and say, I am not fine. (laughs) Like I am struggling with something. Are you okay to hear me talk about it? Are you, you know, do you have, do you have the capacity to hear me vent or give me advice? It's not being afraid to try and, and, how would I externalize your brain so that others may help to help you understand it? Um, I think it's very difficult to work through your own problems entirely alone because the only voice you're going to hear is your own. And if your own is already stuck in a, a depressive ruminative loop, it's very, very, very difficult to break out of that. So externalize your brain, bear it to those and say, you know, I had a suicidal ideation today, not me particular. I'm just saying if somebody asks you and you had something like that and there's somebody that you confide in, you trust, it's having the ability to remove your ego from the situation and say, today was not a good day. And I would, I would appreciate you hearing me out. I, I really genuinely think that is a powerful thing to do. I believe that it can, it can renew your trust in, in other people. It can it can just do so many things for you. And I don't feel like it's happening enough. Now, to be fair, it is certainly happening more often. 
and we're seeing it in baseball and we're seeing it in sports in general that athletes are coming out and saying, I am more than just an athlete. Mm -hmm. I'm a human being with the same emotional struggles as any other human being. So to claim that because so-and-so has a, you know, multi-million dollar contract that they're immune to depression or they're immune to addiction is absurd. It's just money doesn't change neurochemistry. It can't. The only thing that can change your neurochemistry is your own actions. And, you know, another thing that I found immensely helpful, and as you talked about, going to a therapist, seeing a counselor, talk therapy is enormously helpful. And while it is a scary thing to do, the process of finding a therapist is not easy. Not everyone has access to health insurance. Not everyone, you know, right now I can't see my counselor because I don't have health insurance anymore. Mine, you know, ended with the, with the, my contract ending. And so, you know, I'm lucky to have the coping strategies I have from my experiences with our counselor and our therapist, but now I have to put those into play on my own and it's, it's not as easy. And so, you know, it's the best decision I've made is to go to therapy. I, I, I encourage it so much. And if you, if you go to a therapist and you don't really vibe with them or, or it doesn't feel like it's going to work out, find a new one, mm-hmm. like shop there are around. a lot. This is like trying to find a comp. I mean, it is, it's finding a confidant and you may not always just knock it out in one. It might take a couple tries, but all of a sudden you're going to find somebody where you start speaking to them and then you just start rolling and you're talking to them about things that you've maybe not spoken about in 10 years. And it is enormously freeing. And once again, it, it, it ties into that being authentic. These are your personal experiences. They are real and they are completely valid. And having the ability to externalize those experiences and have somebody else tell you, there's nothing wrong with you for feeling that way. Um, you know, d- to have your life validated to me was an extremely powerful moment that I got to experience last year. Um, where my counselor just for the first time ever, I heard that it was, you know, based off of how I am and and my experience, I was told, Hey, there is nothing wrong with you. This is who you are. We just have to figure out how, who you are fits into a relationship fits into, you know, the, the modern life and having that, to work off of has been just uh, genuinely life-changing and I encourage people to try it. Validation goes a long way from someone who doesn't have a horse in your race necessarily, right? It, it's one thing to hear it from a loved one, a friend, Hey, yeah, you're, you're X, Y, Z, but to hear it from someone who is not a part of your day-to-day life, that goes a long way towards being able to be authentic. And I know for you, it's been valuable. For me, it's been valuable. And I too implore, and I'm glad you're, you're coming along many times on this podcast for people to seek out those options because we talked about coping strategies at the beginning. That's the best one. Yeah. There, there's no saying what is, what is best maybe, but that's a really and, good one. And like I said, not everyone is going to have the ability to access mm-hmm. a therapist. I hope that's something that gets addressed in the near future. Um, especially considering the mental health crisis we're going through. I mean, it is, it is prevalent among a lot of our generation. And I think we've seen pretty clearly what happens when there's a generation that has no access to mental health and what that can, what that can do over 50 years. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate you having me on. I, I love having these conversations. Back in the studio here. Wasn't that fascinating? So much from Kieran Lovegrove there. And I mentioned in the open to this that he surprised me because I went into this thinking that we would be mostly focusing on minor league baseball and the advocacy work he's doing and his story within minor league baseball. But we went all over the board. This is a really interesting guy. He's mature. He's got a super witty approach to life. 
And he's doing his thing, which I respect. And I'm really glad that he's been able to turn his life around. So that was Kieran Lovegrove on the mental game. Probably our last one before 2022 rolls around, which means that we are about to enter the third year of the Mental Game Podcast. So I'll take this chance to just thank all of you, whether you're someone who is listening now for the first time or you've been a loyal subscriber from day one. It's really meant a lot to me to bring you this podcast. So I hope you have a happy new year. Let's make 2022 the best one yet. It means really just more distance from 2020, which is, I think, what we want to do both on the calendar and spiritually as a world get as far away from that year as possible so as always i'm sam brief and i will talk to you next year on the mental game podcast